Hey team, this is Robert. I'm happy to bring to you another episode of Mentors for Military, or also known as Mentors, the number four MIL. Command Sergeant Major retired Daniel L. Pinion is a military veteran of the Cold War, Operation Joint Endeavor, Bosnia-Herzegovina, a short stint in Afghanistan, and multiple tours in Operation Iraqi Freedom. He served in numerous infantry, armor, and cavalry leadership positions, including division reconnaissance, armor and infantry battalions, and cavalry squadrons. Pinion led in combat in every non-commissioned officer rank from sergeant to sergeant major during his 28-year career. Born in Ohio, raised in Andover, New Jersey, Dan Pinion now calls Virginia home while serving as a deputy G357 as a Department of the Army civilian. In this episode, he talks about the soldiers under his command and the heroics of what they did. We're proud to have Dan Pinion on the show to talk about the heroics of these brave soldiers. So we're here, though, to talk about a book that in the background there, um, some people might be able to see the the cover and everything, but we're going to get a little bit more deeper in that. And the title of that is Chop That Shit Up. So we'll we'll get a little bit deeper. But we want to talk about some of the soldiers and stuff that you really want to share with the viewers and our audience, um, some of their stories, some of you know their journey and process, as well as your own. Yeah, no, and I really appreciate it. So, one, I'm sure people never expected Dan to write a book. Uh, And most people who have read it or seen it uh, know I wrote it exactly like I talked. So it's very, very common sense, down to earth, not very big words. Uh, Unfortunately, I didn't put a lot of drawings or pictures in there uh, for my (laughs) other scout buddies. Uh, But I think the importance of the book i didn't realize it until it was published the true purpose of what i was trying to do Uh, so if i can backstory just a little bit um i'm very fortunate that i think i'm a pretty good bullshitter uh, and i do very well telling stories Uh, so i would routinely tell jokes tell stories make people laugh uh, I don't know where I got it from. I just, I go back home and my family uh, doesn't get my jokes all the time, uh, but military people do. Uh, and I think if you just think of the concept, just like right now, there's four or five of us in this room and we could tell stories all day long and we would laugh, we would get mad, we would cry. Sometimes we love the army. Sometimes you tell bad stuff about the army, good, bad leaders. Uh, but at the end, you're like, it's truly magical, that stuff. That was really the intent when I decided to sit down and write because I got called up so many times to tell stories to heads of state, four-star generals, right? Come here and tell the story, Sergeant Major. Uh, And you you feel like a clown a little bit, but but I'm I'm okay with center of attention. I do okay (laughs) with that. And I would tell it, but when I started to write, I really want to tell the stories of the soldiers who I served with, uh, what they mean to me, and the soldiers I lost. And what I realized is I was, now this is 15 years of the thought in the head. 
when we actually, I sat down to write it, my wife, Solvig, basically left me alone for one weekend. And in 48 hours, I wrote the entire thing. Uh, I actually wrote 70,000 words. I had no order. I didn't worry about grammar. I just wrote. And I didn't realize when they teach you about journaling, they teach you about focus and capture your day and all that stuff, you don't realize how right they are. Uh, and I, when I started writing or typing nowadays, it was so therapeutic. Uh, and I had no order, no rhythm. I just told stories that I lived, good and bad. And I'd, I'd be crying. I'd be laughing at myself. I was type. And I had 70,000 words in 48 hours, complete. And I took a portion of it. I sent it out to 10 publication companies. Uh, and that's basically you just cold call them or cold email them and submit 250 words. And within three days, seven of the 10 companies are like, we want you. We think this is amazing. Send me the rest of the manuscript. Within a week, all 10 companies came back and said, we want your book. So then I spent the next month and a half, one, extremely scared because I had no idea the process. So now I'm Googling and YouTube and everything. And we just started narrowing down what was the right publishing company, what was the right method, how do we tell the story. And I had three things I told every one of them. I don't want to dishonor the Army in any way. I don't want to dishonor the NCO Corps in any way because of how much I believe in it. And the third thing was is I didn't want the stories of my soldiers to be in any way lessened by me telling funny stories in the book. I didn't want to take focus away from them, but I just try and tell a story. And then the publishing company we went with was Kohler Publishing, outstanding, uh, military friendly, just love. And they had a huge history of military books. And they said, put it chronological. So when we put it chronological, it basically went from private to the day I retired. Uh, and it sort of became a memoir, which I did not want. Um, I never wanted to be about me. I do not mind being center of attention. I know when I'm in charge, I'm not afraid to take charge, but if I could stand in the back and let other people be recognized, I will choose that every time. Uh, and I didn't want a memoir to think this was about me. It's just supposed to be a collection of stories, uh, but it chronological made sense. But something came out of that, which you see the, the naiveness, is that a word? Naiveness? Uh, navity? No, not that naivete. Yeah. Uh, yeah, whatever that word is. Uh, <laughs> you see it from a private, you know, we're young, yeah. we're dumb, mm -hmm. uh, we're having fun, we're partying, and we're making a lot of stupid mistakes. And then you see the gradual maturity come through, and now you can see the transition of leadership. And I say it, and I, I do believe it, you see a point where I broke mentally and physically. Uh, you can, it might not be like, here's the exact spot. I know where it was, but in the book, you can see where I have now reached a point of my life where I was broke mentally and physically. Uh, but yet I still had to push on. So how do you deal with that? How do you deal with depression? How do you deal with PTSD? How do you deal with the loss of soldiers? Meanwhile, your leaderships are telling you, Hey Dan, you're going to keep going like this. And I am jumping positions in the Army that I should not have been jumping. I mean, I am skipping brigade command to go to one-star and two-star level Sergeant Major. 
I am coming out of the academy and being a division G3 SAR major in operations. I mean, I am skipping levels that I'm not supposed to. And they're like, Dan, you're going to keep going up. Meanwhile, inside and physically, I'm going like this. So career's going like this. I'm going like this. Um, and it got to a point where I just couldn't do it anymore. Uh, and uh, despite numerous phone calls like, Dan, here's your path. In three to five years, you're here. Uh, they finally allowed me to retire. And I, there's a little bit of talk about it, like three distinct focuses of my career. Uh, so the book is the collection of that. And I really, I really hope I honored the soldiers. I hope I told the truth of what the Army is because it's not all be all you can be commercials uh, all the time uh, or Army strong. Sometimes uh, it's sweeping the motor pool. Yes, in, in the rain. In the rain. Uh, yeah, with a tornado coming towards you. Sometimes it's marching soldiers when everybody has a car, but it, we're required to march soldiers on Monday. Yeah, but I got a, I got a reason <laughs> behind that. Uh, so that's what I tried to do with the book. Uh, and I know I babbled on about it. But I will tell you, when it came to almost print a few months ago, and we chose November 11th, so it published Veterans Day 2023. Uh, and obviously we chose it for the significance of the day, not to take anything away uh, from the veterans, but it, it's a special day for all of us that served. Um, the therapy inside, it really, the guilt that I felt or still feel, uh, it feels like a next step uh, so I encourage every, everybody to write, but that was the purpose behind the book. Uh, and I'm, I truly thank you that you guys allow me to share some of those stories. We kind of talked before we got started about three or four soldiers. Um, you, you, you said two that really stuck to mind, uh, Marquise and his last name was quick. And then, uh, Diedrich. So can you, can you, you don't have to get as, you can get as deep or as, as light as you yeah. like right now. So uh, let's do the forewarning. I do cry now. So it's funny. So my wife said I was a romantic, uh, all coming up and then we go to combat and I come back and I had no romance. Uh, as she said, I'm not romantic, but I will cry watching a, a Yankee game or talking about soldiers or family. Yeah. So I, I can't talk, because you talk about pride and stuff, so I, I probably will cry, so I apologize. Uh, that's who I am now. Uh, yeah, so the book, like I said, chop that shit up. I tried to write the truth of what happened to our soldiers. And I reached out to all the families to make sure they're aware of how detailed it would be, get their blessing, because I wanted to people to know exactly what they did, and I didn't want to sugarcoat anything. Um, so in our story, or in the book, we talk about four stories, each one of a soldier that we lost, and then some of the soldiers that were wounded. Uh, so i just like to set the scene a little bit. So this is 2006. This is our second tour in Iraq. We were extended the first time, 17 months. Uh, went back home. Uh, sort of story, I, I got fired, uh, but they don't fire you in the army. Uh, they just move you. Uh, so I got moved, uh, but I was blown up in Iraq the first tour in 2003, 2004. And I tore my knees, but I refused to go back. Uh, I had a partial tear going to Iraq and the, the blast just finished it. 
uh, and uh, had arguments. We can, we can go down that rabbit hole. Uh, but anyway, uh, I should have been court-martialed. I wasn't. Uh, I was thankful uh, Brigade Command Sergeant Major saved me, uh, took me under his wing, and, of course, he moved me. So I went to uh, Brigade S3, was the Brigade best brigade s3 nco they ever had uh, <laughs> and as soon as we got back from iraq i had knee surgery full knee reconstruction uh, found out i made the e8 list while re in the recovery room my brigade sergeant major called me uh, now we have only been back 30 days from a 17-month tour and the brigade sergeant major called me and he said hey pinion how's your knee uh, I said, good, thanks, Sergeant Major, for calling me uh, in uh, Heidelberg Hospital. Uh, and he said, good, how long can till you walk? Or how long can, till, yeah, how long till you can walk? I said, well, Doc says I should be running uh, within six to nine months. He's like, that's not what I fucking asked you. Uh, when can you walk? <laughs> I said, well, uh, 30 to 60 days or something to that effect. And he said, good, congratulations, you have made mass art. Uh, we are going back to Iraq uh, and I need you to be the first arm. Uh, so I had been removed as a platoon sergeant, moved to Brigade S3, had surgery, came back and was told we're going right back to Iraq in a couple months. And by the way, we need the lead. I need to be a first arm in the same unit that I basically left. There's some s stories there. So we train up, you know, we were getting some, we were told we were going to do some very, unconventional stuff and i don't want to try and sound special uh but we were a scout brigade reconnaissance troop working for a brigade that was going to go over there and do small kill team action whether when we need a whole bunch of snipers and other specialties and we trained for that uh and then we got to iraq we were attached to an armor battalion for a little while and then we got told we had to go to ramadi iraq Ramadi, Iraq in 2006 was, I think it's third consecutive years, the most dangerous city in the world. Uh, and our mission was clear. It was change it. And even getting from north, we're in B.I.s and Sinjar, Iraq, way up north uh, by Talifar, uh, just getting to Ramadi was an adventure in itself with IEDs and attacks, et cetera. Uh, and we went from a place where terrorists were basically blown up themselves. It was like basic training for terrorists, and they weren't very good, uh, to Ramadi where they were doing complex attacks. And my percentage might be off, but I would estimate that they owned 85% of the town, the enemy. So we are now in our fourth, fifth year of war with an enemy that controlled the city. And we own the ends of it and the top and we were told to control the whole thing. Again, that's my perception, my unit's perception, but I think I'm pretty accurate. And the unit we're replacing uh, took a lot of casualties, and you can see the wear of war on their faces. Now, my first 17 months in combat was not that bad. Despite getting blown up, the IDs weren't as complex yet, uh, and everybody was returned to duty. Now, we have suffered after like we didn't understand what tbi was at the time uh and i to this day still have a soldier suffering from one of the ieds he hit but we went to ramadi and it was life-changing uh and the night of the transfer of authority we attacked the city and for the next four months five months foot i say it foot by foot 
I can, and I'm not comparing to any other war, but if you were to imagine World War II and going door to door, house to house, town by town, that's what we did. Uh, we, I was a part of Fallujah uh, in 2003, and this was way different. Uh, and it was a, it was a fight. Within the first month, uh, our unit of only 57 men and with attachments. We already had 20 casualties, uh, and we're starting to lose lives. Uh, so the first two we lost was Staff Sergeant Clint Story and Sergeant Bradley Best from an IED. And we, you know, we, I know we're going to talk about PTSD, uh, and I talk about it in the book. I was supposed to be on that mission as their first sergeant. Uh, we would rotate who we go out with, and they were going out on a route reconnaissance, doing some zone recon at the same time, and trying to do some snap checkpoints. We we're trying to catch terrorist trade or smuggling weapons and ammunition and stuff, explosives. I got called to a meeting the night before that mission, and it was supposed to be the next morning, 07 or 08, whatever time. Uh, so I couldn't go on the mission. So they left and went on the mission. I went to my meeting, and yes, I needed to be there because they're asking questions that are first our nose, administration stuff, and the brigade sergeant major says, "Pinion, I want you there. You go." Um, but the XO's driver come bursting in the door during the meeting and said, "First sergeant," and I saw the look. Uh, no words had to be said, and I ran out of the meeting. And then along the way, he couldn't even talk. Uh, so I know it's bad, and we're just in some pickup truck driving back to our little spot to go out. Uh, I get there, my truck's already getting wheeled up. My driver was our commo. Uh, he's getting all the radios on, Blue Force Tracker, et cetera, and I'm starting to hear what's going on, and they're just screaming. And it was, bottom line was an IED. It was probably our 10th or 15th IED, but this one was way serious than the others because we now had casualties and death. Uh, so I'm just trying to set the picture of where we're at, mm -hmm. and I want to tell their story. Um, I can see the IED smoke plume from our camp. Uh, they're only a couple kilometers away, and I can see it. As soon as they told me the grid, and I'm looking at the map, I can see where they are. Uh, it was the Humvee exploding uh, and continuing to burn off that I was looking at the smoke plume. Me and the commander rush out the gate in our Humvees, just two of us. Uh, I think by then we were supposed to be traveling with four. Uh, our other platoon was already out the gate, too, and we're starting to reroute them. Uh, I'm getting the reports, and they say we have two KIAs, and they can't get to them. And we had, a, I'm sorry, a third. We had our, our interpreter uh, was killed that day. And they can't get to them. You have to go around and come back to get to their location, and it's a dirt road, paved road. And as I'm probably... A kilometer away from seeing, I can see everything in front of me. I mean, it was just flat. I can see everything. And you can see the Humvee. And I thought I was looking at the gunner's hatch because uh, I saw the hole. Mm -hmm. And then I saw the tires spinning. Here's the bottom. Uh, I was looking at the bottom of the Humvee on its side with a hole as big as a gunner's hatch. Uh, there's no way they could have survived. It was an EFP? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, it was a bunch of 155 rounds. Okay. Uh, command wired. Uh, meanwhile, the platoon is doing everything they're supposed. We practice this, and this we're we're just it's funny because we're going to talk about uh, load plans. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, they were doing everything they're supposed to do. 
and they're reacting and they found a command wire. They're chasing the command wire and it was from an old railroad. I think it was a railroad factory warehouse. Uh, they busted down the gate and they were starting to clear that building. Meanwhile, we had our first platoon. We said, you have to get the fire truck, civilian fire truck on a camp. We didn't have military firefighters. We had a fire fighting those civilians that was not supposed to go off the camp. And I was like, you need to try and get them off because the Humvee is on fire. I've never seen, everything was cooking off. Meanwhile, Mike Hayes was the gunner, was blown up almost, well, not almost, he did lose his left leg. And I'm trying not to be too graphic, I apologize, uh, but I think I say it in the book. He was only hanging on by his skin, was holding his left leg together above his knee. Uh, he was on fire, crawling on his back away from the explosion as it's cooking off. Meanwhile, Sergeant Barr, who I get to meet tomorrow again, uh, who's now Major Barr, uh, is running, trying to open the Humvee door, and it's cooking off, and he's trying to get in if he can't. Chris Buckley is standing over Mike Hayes so the medic can work on him. I, so I'm telling the details because that's what happened. I want people to know what those soldiers did. Chris Buckley's 19 years old, giving his life to protect our medic and Mike Hayes so they can work on him. Sergeant, Sergeant Barr is trying to get a Humvee door open while it's exploding. And then he had to back up from the heat. They get Mike Hayes in the Humvee and they start coming towards me as we're coming. And our rule, and most people know, first arm, you have to evacuate the casualties. Uh, you want the platoon sergeant to stay with the platoon, control the fight. We got our commander, we got lieutenants, everybody's doing their job. My job is to get the casualties back and get them treated and try and save their life. Well, the Humvee doors, are the way we tried to do it was the TCs would go door to door uh, direction. Uh, we would open the doors and we would just move the casualty over. And this talks about load plan. And this talks about soldiers. The medic, uh, Doc Herod, who had treated Mike Hayes, was with him in the Humvee. As we were going to jump out and grab and shift him, he's like, don't fucking touch him or move him. Uh, and he's screaming at me. This is a PFC screaming at his first arm, telling me not to move him. And he was 100% correct. The casualty, my case, was stabilized. Doc had him, and we didn't need to move him until we were back at the cache. Or Charlie Med. Uh, but because our load plans were the exact same in our vehicles, me and the TC just flipped seats. So Sergeant Oyenek jumped in my vehicle, and I jumped in his. I continued with his crew. He continued back with my crew. Uh, I mean, we trained, practiced, everything the same. So our radios, I knew where to switch, what channels to go to, et cetera. Uh, we got Mike Hayes back. As I'm coming in and I'm rolling through the gate calling everything, the fire trucks are going out. They volunteered to leave the base camp to go try and help us in enemy territory. Uh, there's nothing you could do, uh, Clint and Bradley uh, were dead instantly. There's no doubt in my mind. Uh, and the fire truck did their job. They put out the fire. 
uh, to allow us to get our brothers uh, out of there. And Sergeant Olianek and Captain Dan Enslin at the time uh, are tremendous heroes in my book because they're the ones who went in and got them. They kept the soldiers back, and they went and got our brothers out. Uh, meanwhile, I was back at the cache, and uh, they took him in, and as soon as they brought Mike in, and amazing, Mike never screamed in pain. Mike didn't even look hurt. He was in shock, there's no doubt. He was the calmest guy I have ever met in my life under those conditions. I've never seen anything like it, and I, I relate it back to shock. Uh, I think 60% of his body was burned. Uh, and his leg is holding on by a piece of skin that our medic is holding his leg together, two pieces. And I apologize for the details. Uh, they get him back, and the doctor, as they're getting ready to take him back to amputate his leg, uh, I said, save his life. Uh, he said, I can't save his leg. I said, save his life. Uh, and they have already learned from previous incidents that I was going into with my soldiers, not into their surgery, but I was going in Charlie Med with them every time, and I was right there next to the nurses and doctors as they were assessing. Uh, unfortunately, that's the horrible relationship that we built together. And uh, they brought him back, put him to sleep, amputated his leg, and then prepared him for uh, the flight out. Uh, and he went back to uh, Texas, uh, the burn center there, uh, Bamsey, and uh, he was there for a couple months. Uh, doing great now, and I'll talk about them at the end. But I'm just trying to set the scene. Uh, this is all in August. Within the last two weeks of August, from uh, well, really the end of July is when we started taking IEDs. To the end of August, we had probably lost 30 to 40% of our troop. Uh, our brigade commander... Uh, he wrote the foreword for the book, uh, and I didn't realize it, uh, that we were the company-size element. We took the most casualties of any company-size element uh, in that time, over troop element, because uh, you, you don't think about that stuff. So uh, to get to the stories, uh, the two other soldiers, uh, the brigade commander said, what can I do? I said, I need people. I need soldiers. Uh, I now, as a leader, as the senior enlisted person, the first aren't was starting to break inside, but I couldn't show it. Uh, I became cold. I compartmentalized everything. Uh, it was, I mean, it was so bad that as they are preparing them to fly home, after they died, I'm already preparing their memorial service. Like, it was like a checklist. Like, what do you do now? Inventory their stuff. What do you do now? So I, I became robotic with no emotion. Uh, and it was it was wrong. I needed to show the emotion. I need to grieve, but I didn't want to do it in front of soldiers. I had a platoon sergeant try and quit on me. Uh, I'm probably not saying that right. Platoon sergeant came to me and said, hey, I've been a platoon sergeant here 18 months, almost 24 months, whatever it was. Uh, you have another sergeant first class in the headquarters uh, that needs his experience in platoon. If it's okay with you, we can do the switch. I, I took his quit, and I had deep respect for this man. I always will, uh, because I, 
I now know he was in a situation I was never put in because as a platoon sergeant on my first tour, I never faced what he faced. So I didn't, I had a different understanding. Um, but that conversation stayed between us well until now. Uh, and I looked at what was the right thing for those soldiers. And the best thing for those soldiers was for him staying there. Uh, so I said, no, uh, you're going to stay the platoon sergeant. I need you to be you. Um, and I understand he was scared. I then watched soldiers coming back from every mission and they would be hugging each other and high-fiving after they cleared their weapons and came in and started. I mean, I understood or saw the sacrifices they were making knowing they were going to get injured or die and still doing it. And I saw the relief when they survived. So I started going on a mission more with them uh, and showing them that despite our fears, we had to go out and stuff. So that's the situation we're in. 30, 40% casualty losses. I mean, just take a platoon out of your troop and replace. And we don't understand replacement soldiers. You hear about it. You see it in the movies. In our first tour in Iraq, we had replacement soldiers, but they weren't really replacement soldiers. Stop loss lifted. We were there 17 months, so people rotated out, people rotated in. But Ramadi, Iraq, 2006, we received replacements. I was getting soldiers from another battalion that was back on rear D and coming to Iraq and be like, you're going to the BRT now. They were rerouted on their way to Iraq because of the amount of casualties our brigade was taken and in our unit. Those are replacement soldiers. Uh, we had the next door, I'll tell if it's okay, and Sergeant Marquis quick because it's one of my biggest failures as a leader. One of the soldiers that was injured with him, I can barely tell you his full name because I only knew him for three days. I never got to even learn about him fully because he came from another battalion to us because shorthanded we are, and three days later was getting medevaced out from grenade fragments into his back and couldn't feel his legs. That's replacement, and you feel horrible, uh, which leads me to how I chose the lead after. So I would like to talk about Sergeant Marquis Quick, who is one of the greatest individuals I've ever met in my life. And uh, the bottom line is Sergeant Marquis Quick, and I say this with honesty and conviction, should receive the Medal of Honor. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for Part 2 with Sergeant Major Dan Pinion. So I get out and I start banging on the tank hole, take off my Kevlar as I'm hearing bullets and I'm like, open. Oh, I just want him to push the barrier out of the way. Mm -hmm. Just push the barrier. Uh, that way I can just take my Humvee down. No answer. I don't know why uh, to this day. So anyway, uh, I can see them and I tell the, the Humvee, I'm like, turn it around because I know we have to go back that way. So they're turning around. Meanwhile, I start running towards my soldiers. And I get to the first intersection. They're two intersections away. Uh, and I can see Staff Sergeant uh, Jesus Gonzalez, Jesus Gonzalez, running up lead. This guy is the man. And I can see bullets just zinging around him, just zinging. And I can see them on a polis litter behind him carrying. And he's just popping smoke grenades, shooting back. I mean, they're in a near ambush. 
I do the stupid thing and I start screaming at him like, you're getting fucking shot at. And then all of a sudden, he, he, now we're only 100 meters away, two blocks or whatever it is. He's screaming at me. He's like, you're getting shot at or something. Who knows? And then I realize bullets are just impacting around me. Uh, so then I start returning fire. I poop, pop a smoke grenade. Uh, and I, now I'm trying to protect myself and I'm trying to protect my soldiers. 